series in Revelation. We're going to take a look at really one verse, Romans 1.21, and we're going to use that to kind of springboard into a discussion that I think is timely. Romans 1, verse 21, hear now the word of God. Because, although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray, thanking you that you have opened our eyes to see wonderful things and glorious things. We do pray that we would not take rank with those who are of foolish, darkened hearts. We do pray that you would ever shine the light of Christ in this church and in our own minds. And we do pray this morning as we examine what it means that there was a lack of thankfulness in the heart of man, that this would compel us to have more sanctified thoughts about who you are and what your call is in our lives. So we lift lift this up to you, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, those of you who've sat under my teaching for a while know that I'm, I'm not really given to alliterations. You know, an alliteration where you have the same first letter, right? Peter Pe- Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers or whatever. I, I think they do help you remember, right? But what I, I have noticed is that sometimes the alliteration takes over the passage. More than once I've seen kind of, you know, the alliteration, uh, you know, believing, becoming, belonging, given to a passage that maybe is in the passage, but really maybe not. We're just going to make it work because I, we really want the believing, becoming, belonging to take control of the message. Well, having gotten that out of the way, there is an alliteration that I've heard over the years that I've seldom used, but I want to use this morning. And I think it captures really the heart of the Christian faith. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Guilt, grace, gratitude. So let's summarize this. Guilt. It's not popular today to talk about guilt. But I would argue that guilt is a necessary prerequisite in terms of our understanding of where we start with God. Ever since the fall of man, it starts with guilt. We read, and I could have picked one of a hundred passages But Romans 3.20, I mean, we could have gone all the way back to Genesis, right? Chapter 3. But I think Romans 3.20 says it well. For by works of the law, and that would be whatever we do, you know, our behavior, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, I think what Paul's saying in there is when you start reading the law of God, one of the first things that it does is it acts like a mirror to show you yourself and how you have fallen short 
of the righteousness of God. Guilt. I mean, Jesus made statements that I think at first blush might make us feel a little uncomfortable. When he says, I didn't come for the righteous. Well, of course, when he said that, it was a little bit tongue-in-cheek because it's not as if Jesus didn't know that there was no one righteous. When he says that, what he's saying is, I did not come for people who think they're righteous. If you don't realize you're sick, why would you ever go to a doctor is the illustration that, that he gives. <clears throat> really, even though there's such resistance today to this idea of guilt, I mean, psychiatrists and psychologists are working overtime trying to convince people who are guilty that they're not guilty. You're, you're, it's a gift from God when our eyes are opened to see our own guilt. We shouldn't bemoan that. We should be thankful that I finally see the reality of my situation. I mean, we see it over and over and over. You've heard me quote Isaiah 6 numerous times, right? When Isaiah is caught up into the throne room of God, watching this glorious celestial heavenly host and worship. And what is the first thing that he does? What is the first thing that he says? Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. He didn't take comfort in the fact that he might have been better than other people. He viewed the sinfulness of humanity as an indictment against himself. We are a fallen, guilty race. That wasn't a bad day for Isaiah. That was a good day for Isaiah because the story wasn't over. We should thank God that he's opened our eyes to see our own guilt. It's almost like a doctor who's giving you the diagnosis that you've got a horrible, horrible disease. And just for a minute, you're like, I'm gonna, am I going to die? And then the doctor says, no, there's a cure. So this, this diagnosis, this guilt is not without remedy. Denying the guilt is without remedy. The acknowledgement of the guilt, you find remedy. You see, without the guilt, we wouldn't see our need for grace. Why do I need grace? Why do I need the gospel? Why do I need Jesus? I'm doing fine. You're not doing fine. There's a serious problem that needs to be dealt with. And that gets us to the second of our alliteration, and that is grace. I think church services, you know, when we occasionally will preach through the Ten Commandments. And, you know, when you're preaching through the Ten Commandments, there is a sense in which you're kind of going, yeah, I think I can pull that off. I think I can do that. I haven't killed anybody today. But as you get deeper and deeper and deeper into studying the Ten Commandments, you end up at this, at least the, the, the attempt you make preaching is, you want everybody to go, who can do that? Who, who can pull that off? No, you can't even have a foul thought. It's not just whether or not you can. If you just have a, an ungodly hatred, it's like you've murdered them. And you're like, whoa. So, so I think our sanctification produces in us a keener understanding of our own guilt before God. I, I think that 
you know, our time, let me tell you, when we have our time of, of pardon, when we have that time of confession of sin, if you can't think of things, you're not very sanctified. <laughs> I think that the more mature you are, the longer list you have. And the more we all realize our need for grace. And, and if that happens, our, our worship reflects it. And by worship, I'm talking about our singing, but not just the singing, everything, our praying, our listening, the whole participation in the worship service changes when we understand the depth of our guilt and begin to appreciate the height of God's grace. Grace may be the apex of the Christian message. That's why half the churches in our denomination are named Grace, right? Grace Carson. You know, I mean, every, every, other, every other OPC church is named Grace. Maybe we should change our name, Grace. <laughs> For by grace, Paul writes, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. And I, that just captures the heart of the gospel. And I'll tell you this, assailing the notion that we're saved by grace, and I'll say by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, assailing that may be the prime directive of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Going after this idea that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is a message that the enemy wants out of the church. But sadly, it does find its way into the church. There's always this sense that we're kind of battling this notion, which is like inherent in our human psychology, and that is that God is going to reward me according to my deeds. Why? Because that's the way every other relationship is. We, we feel that way in our relationships with the nicest people we know. But this idea that I am saved by the works of another completely and fully and totally is something that is good news. Well, it's a, it's a constant battle. I mean, it would take a very severe, intentional work of degeneration, spiritual degeneration, for any of us during communion to somehow imagine our blood in the cup with Christ's blood, right? I mean, the very thought of it, even saying it, makes me almost sick. But let me tell you this. If you think that somehow you have found favor with God through something you've done, that's exactly what you're doing during the Lord's Supper. You're putting a little bit of your blood there, a little bit of your broken body there. Now, I hope that sounds reprehensible to you. But the moment we say, well, you know what, I, I don't think I'm that guilty. I need help, but I don't need all the help. I need a lot of help. I need a lot of grace. I don't need, I don't need it entirely. We've done that. 
Well, I think that's one of the um, beauties of having the Lord's Supper every week. One of the beauties of having the Lord's Supper every week is that we are continually reminded that it is the broken body and shed blood of Christ that gives us peace with God. Like that's, that's got to be the message. That is the heart of grace. Now, it is after we meditate upon, it is after we enjoy that grace that we have good works. I mean, we're going back to Isaiah, right? Woe is me. And then what happens? You know, one of the, one of the angels one of the, t- takes, takes a, a tongs. I mean, the, the image here is that they, and goes to this altar and gets a coal that he, the angel, which is a powerful being, can't even touch. It's so holy, he can't even touch it. He has to use tongs to touch it. And that coal is a type of Christ. And what does he do with it? Remember Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among people of unclean lips. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. It's this idea that what's coming out of your mouth should reveal a lot to you. And he takes that coal and he touches the lips of Isaiah. And what happens? His sin is purged. His guilt is gone. But that's not the end of Isaiah 6, is it? And then all of a sudden you hear this conversation. Hey, there's some work to be done. There's some work to be done. Who should we send? And what does he say? Here am I. Send me. It's, see, that happens after. after. After his sin is purged. He's not going, look at, in order for me to get my sin purged, I better do this work. No, that's not what happens. You see, any, any good work we do is a response to the grace already bestowed. It's not a means by which we acquire grace. Otherwise, it's not grace. Um, you know, I mean, for those of you who are really tuned into this kind of thing, you recognize that the subtext in my mind right now is Calvinism. You know, I mean, just so you know. Calvinism gets kind of a bad rap. Most people, when I hear them tell me what they think a Calvinist is, they do not give me an accurate assessment. I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again. I was, um, my whole adult life, I've worked at rescue missions. And about 15 or 20 years ago, I um, switched from downtown to one in Wilmington. And there was a couple elderly couple who ran that. And they, they had um, let go of a guy who was a Calvinist and kind of rubbed them the wrong way because of things he had said or this or that. And uh, the, one of the guys on the board was an old friend of mine I went to high school with. And he's like, you know, he used to call me Vidge, you know, because when I was young, that's what they all called me. He's like, hey, do you think you might want to fill this spot? And I'm like, yeah, I would. We'll go to more local. And I'll go, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. He's like, yeah, but... <clears throat> You know, Judy's not really comfortable with her, you know, this Calvinist thing. Are you willing to talk to her? And I'm like, sure, I'll talk to her. So Judy and I get on, uh, into a conversation. She calls me on the phone, or I called her, I can't remember. And so she's like, okay, so I hear you're a, you're a Calvinist. And I'm like, 
Yes, yes, ma'am, I am. She's like, so will you invite people to believe in Jesus? Yes, I will. Yes, I will. I will invite people to believe in Jesus and call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And she's like, okay, okay, well then uh, where does your Calvinism kick in? <laughs> and I go, well, Judy, it's, it's this. I, I'll invite people to do that. And you know, I'll tell them, trust in the Lord. Call upon the name of the Lord. Believe on the Lord. But then, after I do that, I have drawn the conclusion biblically that it is 100% a result of the grace of God for anybody to respond. And she said, well, I believe that. I go, well, maybe you're a Calvinist. You know? <laughs> That's just it, though. Is it 100% or is it 99.9%? No, I think that we have to recognize that it is a 100% grace in order for us, as we get to our third G, for that to even be proper, this idea of gratitude. You see, praise and good works, what, everything we do should come from a sense of gratitude. We're guilty God has, been, God has given us grace, and so now our entire lives reflect our knowledge of that with gratitude in everything we say, everything we do, everything we think. We don't obey God's commandments in hopes, in hopes of being set free from the slavery of sin. Now, you, I, those of you who've been here for a while, you're like, well, that's obvious. Let me tell you, it is not obvious to people. Almost everybody that you invite to church will give some response like, well, I'm, I think I'm good enough. I think I've got my act together. Like, that just is pervasive. This idea that we need to somehow live a life that is so pleasing to God that he will finally say, good enough. As a kid, the cartoons I watched said as much. I mean, it's just a very, this idea that we are going to somehow have peace with God based upon how good we are is something we can't escape. It is something that Adam and Eve did in the very beginning, right? They, I mean, it's, it's just weaved into our psyche. I need some fig leaves. Where are the fig leaves? We st we're still thinking that way. And God's like, you know, the, your fig leaves don't work. There needs to be the shedding of blood in order for there to be the forgiveness of sin. You see, we obey not in order to be set free. We, we obey because we've been set free. We're not trying to earn God's love. Let me tell you, if you're a believer, you can't make God love you any more than he does. We're responding to his love. The Ten Commandments, right? You've got the, the epitome of the law. The Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments don't start with a commandment, do they? The Ten Commandments starts with a reminder. For I, am the, for I, your Lord, delivered you from bondage. So before we get to the ten things that I'm going to tell you to do, let me remind you of the thing I did. That I have delivered you 
from the slavery of sin and bondage. I brought you out of that that land of Egypt, which serves as kind of a, a type of the slavery of sin. So we're, we're responding. I, I, um, you know, I, I think of my own children, and I think, you know, I, I want my children to do good things. I want them to be servers. You know, I want them to serve. But I don't ever want them to serve me in order to win my love. That's kind of sick. I want, I want them to serve me and serve my wife because they recognize how much we love them. You see how one is so different than the other? We can uh, interject that into our praise, into our worship time. We don't enter into our time of worship in hopes of somehow connecting with God. I've, I've had conversations with worship leaders, and by worship leaders, we're talking about the person leading the music. And uh, who's, they got their own thing kind of going usually, you know, separate from whoever's preaching. And I've had these conversations about, so what is your goal in the leading of the singing? And they have stated in no uncertain terms, we're seeking to connect with God. Now, I'm trying to figure out, like, psychologically, what are they talking about here? And, and maybe they're talking about, you know, coming to a place where our focus is more razor sharp and clear and this and that. But I think that is a very dangerous statement because we are not worshiping in hopes of connecting with God. We are worshiping because God has connected with us. We, we are not going, where are you? I'm going to find you. One more stanza and you'll show up, Right? We've been told in our study of the Revelation that Jesus is in our midst. He has called us to come here. He has connected with us. We are not climbing Jacob's ladder. Jesus is Jacob's ladder, and he has come to us. And we are worshiping him for that which is already ours. And I can't say how critical that is in terms of our understanding of what it means to be a Christian We are responding in gratitude, and yet, I feel like our gratitude can be so twisted. I feel like our gratitude can be so inept. And I think that it's because, as I said a minute ago, we have a twisted and inept sense of gratitude because we have a false sense of guilt, and we have an incomplete sense of grace. And by the way, just because we kind of understand the theology of it doesn't mean that it's actually penetrated. It's like we need to be reminded over and over and over. I think that if we really understood our guilt, I mean really understood our guilt, and we really understood our grace, the grace of God lavished upon us, that would radically change every last single aspect of our lives. I don't think we're anywhere near that, to be honest with you. You know, we just celebrated Thanksgiving. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I mean, we have this, uh, you know, dedication to thankfulness, flooding the airwaves, and I think that's great. What are you thankful for? Sometimes we'll go around our table and, you know, and go, what are you thankful for? Which is fine. But I have found that our gratitude is very, very fragile. 
and it is fragile when it's not built upon the rock of guilt and grace. If we have that kind of gratitude, if we have that kind of thankfulness that is not built upon what we're talking about here, and that is our immense guilt before God and this glorious grace from the blood of Christ, then our gratitude becomes very, very tenuous. Jesus taught of a very dangerous type of gratitude. Now, his audience in this lesson were comprised of people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So that's his audience. His audience are people who they didn't really buy the whole idea that I'm guilty. They didn't buy the whole idea that I am 100% need the grace of God. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and which I think necessarily follows is held other people in contempt. It just kind of goes with the territory. And he tells this story, and the story is about two guys who go to the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee, one's a religious guy, and the other is somebody, uh, you know, who lives on the wrong side of the tracks, so to speak. But they're both religious. Here's a type of prayer that is a dangerous type of prayer. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Well, you know, I mean, we all kind of know this story, and we're all so glad we're not that guy. Yet we unwittingly don't realize that we're glad we're doing the same thing to him that he's doing to the other guy. Lord, I'm, I'm thankful that I'm not like this Pharisee. <laughs> later, later in this lesson, Jesus will say, the, the other guy, whose prayer amounted to this, pounding on his chest and saying, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus will say, it's that man who came from the temple justified. Big word, by the way, justified. And that means he's acquitted before God. He's pardoned before God. His sin, all those wonderful things we say, right? That your sins are removed as far as the east is from the west, is deep in the ocean. That is the guy, the guy who said, be merciful to me, the sinner, is the one who walked down justified. What's interesting is, with this Pharisee, those, were, those aren't bad things, right? He fasts. He gives tithes. He's probably not an extortioner. He's probably not a thief. He's probably a good neighbor. He's probably a guy you'd like to live, have, live next door to you. But, the, but the, the context of this lesson is being justified before God, right? Remember who the audience is? People who are confident in their own righteousness before God. And so Jesus is kind of going, that's a dangerous type of gratitude to have. You know what? In a certain sense, he should have been grateful to God for all those virtues. And I'll get to that in just a second. We should be. But we should never glory or take comfort even in a righteousness in ourselves that God has given to us. Even the things in our own lives where we see that we used to struggle with and we're kind of like, yeah, God delivered me from that or this or this. Should we thank God for that? Yes. Should we take comfort before God in that? No. 
Remember what I said, the more your eyes are open, the more you realize you're a bigger sinner than you ever realized. This idea of partial gratitude is the mortar which builds the stairwell straight to hell. I think it's been said, you know, it's Jesus plus something equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We, it's this, this alone, that word alone, sola, is a big word. Not only is it the stairwell to hell, but what happens in terms of our behavior is we, be, we begin to hold other people in contempt. We kind of look at other people and just go, how in the world can you be the way you are? Well, as I said, I think our gratitude is very fragile. You can just ask yourself, you know, the, the good works, the good thoughts, the righteous living that, are, that is a result of you being grateful, when things aren't going well for you, how quickly does that vaporize? How, how, how many of us go, Lord, you need to keep me at a certain level. And if you keep me at that level of comfort, then I'll continue to be a righteous person. Because if, if, if that's the mentality, then we're not getting it. Right? We're, not, we're, 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 we're thinking God is holding back. When right now, everybody in this room who knows Christ has the riches of heaven. They belong, the riches of heaven belong to you. And yet part of us is going, yeah, well, I need a little more. You know, I just, it's kind of a rough day. And so my willingness to, to be a loving person toward others as a result of the gratitude I have for you saving me and not only rescuing me from, from hell at such a great price, but bequeathing unto me the inheritance of eternal riches. It's not quite getting me where I need to be. That is a very dangerous disposition for us to have. Well, we should not only be continually grateful for everything that surrounds us, for all things, even the difficulties of our day, right? Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. That you just wake up going, I am grateful. I am thankful. I am thankful today for everything out there. But you know what else? At the risk of sounding like the Pharisee, everything in here as well. And again, I don't want us to become Pharisees and take comfort before God with what virtues he's inculcated in my own life or heart. Nonetheless, if you have found that you are at all walking in obedience, if, if, if you've kind of moved in that direction, we should daily recognize that it is there but for the grace of God. Not something that you have somehow done yourself. Matthew Henry, the great 17th century theologian, spoke of a time when he got robbed. He was out on a path and got robbed. and Then afterward, he offered a prayer And in his prayer, he said, thank you, Lord, that even though I was robbed, I was not hurt. And Lord, thank you that even though I was robbed, I didn't really have much to steal. 
And thank you, Lord, that even though I was robbed, I made it safely home. But more than anything, Lord, I thank you that I was the one being robbed and not the robber. I, I think we think that we got where we are on our own, as if, as if we were born on third base, and then we go home and think we had a home run. We, we, we don't realize that any goodness that you have, that I have, is a result of the grace of God, of the restraining hand of God, keeping us from going where we would otherwise go. You, we have this attitude, well, not me, I wouldn't do. Look, I look at these people, and I look at that behavior, not me, not me, never. Well, let me tell you what the Bible says about that. What the Bible says in its experiment of the entire human race during the time of Noah was that the wholesale rejection of the gospel, which was what was happening, right? And so it's like God is out, no guilt, no grace, no nothing except for Noah and his family. The, the mentality of the entire race at that time was that every thought of every person was continuously evil. Everybody. So, so if you and I were part of that, right, that this kind of pre-Noah period, that would include us. We do tend to have this, I would never do that. You don't understand, I would never do that. And that may be true, but why would you never do that? What makes you so special that you would never do that, but somebody else would do that? The only reason you would never do that is because of something God has done. So the very idea that I would not cross that road is something for which I should thank God. It's not something that came out of my nature, because according to human nature, you and I, apart from the restraining hand of God, the Spirit of God, the grace of God and the gospel, every last single thought in our minds would be continuously evil day and night. I don't know how bad that is, but it seems pretty bad to me. We'll say, there but for the grace of God go I. We say that, but I don't think we really mean it. I think we say it, we kind of know it in theory. But then, you know, we look at people who frustrate us, right? You know, you can create your own list. Rioters, terrorists, lazy people. I don't, I don't know, you, you make, you, you, who's, who is just frustrating you? But they, they need to change their behavior. And you know what? They do. By the way, don't take anything that I'm saying here as a justification for bad behavior. That's not at all what I'm saying here. Human culpability is real. If people are guilty, they're guilty, and they should face the consequences. This, what I'm saying here has nothing to do with that. What we're talking about here is the recognition that the very people that frustrate you the most are what you would be apart from the grace of God. Now, I think that recolors the entire picture. And again, I'm not saying there should not be, you know, you know, criminals shouldn't be put in jail. I'm not saying that one bit. 
but it does alter the mentality that we have with those people that we find most difficult. Well, the reason that you and I don't fall into that category, keeping this in mind that we don't want to offer the prayer of the Pharisee, is because God has restrained us by his grace. We need to recognize, you know, that, I mean, even the Apostle Paul, in his biggest self-indictment of his own behavior, which I think is in Romans 7, right? You know, the passage where he's like, I continually do that which I do not want to do. You know, it ends up with, you know, oh, wretched man that I am, and so forth. Talk about guilt, right? Even there, he, uh, he noticed within himself the desire to do right. Like, he knew it was a struggle. And it was a struggle he was failing, but it was a struggle where with the unbeliever, there's no struggle. You just keep doing the wrong thing, and you're perfectly content with it until you stand before God on Judgment Day. So it is there. It is something we've all experienced. But we should always recognize that whatever level we find ourselves walking in righteousness, it's a result of the grace of God and not a result of our own intestinal fortitude, our ability to somehow stand above other people or whoever we take that. What I want to put before us is that a proper understanding for us to have as believers in this time, you know, Thanksgiving, although it's really not just Thanksgiving, right? It should be 24-7, is that apart from God's grace in our lives, we would be in the same condition as those people we find most reprehensible. So let's be challenged not to glory in our own character. Right? When it gets right down to it, we're all just beggars telling other beggars where to get a piece of bread. And the moment we think we're more than that, we've taken a step in the wrong direction. Now, we opened with Romans one twenty one, and I want to finish with that. Because a lack of thanksgiving, what we see in this passage, in this verse, is that a lack of thanksgiving is kind of a a primal, foundational sin of humanity. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. But then we see this little phrase there that we kind of blow by, right? Nor were thankful. But then we see where they end up. This is like, this is the pool of humanity, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, the context of this passage is what you might want to call, um, you know, biblical anthropology. You know, it's the biblical understanding of man. Really, even more detailed, biblical epistemology. What, what, does pe- what do people know? What is it you can't not know? There aren't very many things you can't not know. But one of the things that Paul is pressing here is, you can't not know that there is, in fact, a God. That's his argument. His argument is... God has revealed himself to everyone. It's not a saving knowledge, but it is a sure knowledge. Everybody knows God is. Charles Hodge explains it this way. 
this passage, that it does not mean merely that they had the opportunity of knowing him. This, those of you who are apologists, this should speak to you. When I'm an, as an apologist, an apologist is somebody who's giving you know, a reasoned defense for the existence and truth of God. What the Bible is telling me to whoever I'm speaking with is they already know God is. Right? He's not just giving them an opportunity to know. They know. Hodge says that it does not mean merely that they had the opportunity of knowing him, but that in the constitution of their own nature, right? The, it's part of their, their image of God, and in the works of creation, so it's in them and something they see, they actually possessed an intelligible revelation of the divine existence and perfections. Everybody knows there's a God. Calvin called it the sensus uh, divinitatis, the, the sense of the divinity. Everybody knows this. Now, the appropriate response to this knowledge of God's revelation of himself would have been, number one, worship. To glorify him as God. That should, be, that should be the first thing. But what might not be so obvious, as I mentioned a little ago, is that short phrase, and that is, nor were they thankful. The things for which we should be thankful are beyond number. But, Certainly included in this list is the very revelation of God himself. Like we are, we are to be thankful that God has revealed himself to the creation. I don't, I'm not sure if we ever think that way. That it wasn't, God was not obliged to do that. To reveal, the, the, mo, the most wonderful thing we can know is that God is, and that he sent his son. And he did not need to reveal these things to us, but he did. And we are to be thankful for the fact that he did. You know, so part of our thank you note to God is that he revealed himself to us. I think we generally take it for granted. John Calvin made this statement about this. Nor is it without reason that he adds that they were not thankful, talking about the verse we were just studying. For there is no one who is not indebted to him for numberless benefits, yea, even on this count alone, because he, he has been pleased to reveal himself to us. He has abundantly made us indebted to him. The fact that God revealed himself means that he has made us indebted to him. Our guilt and God's grace should ever lead us to gratitude and thankfulness and works that correspond with that. It is a thankfulness that should produce worship and obedience. That God has made himself known to us, Calvin offers, has abundantly made us indebted to him. You know, a little while ago I was talking about the idea of guilt is not very popular. Neither is the idea of debt that we owe. You know, it's like we've got a culture of entitlement. Like we just feel we are entitled. I don't deserve that. 
I don't deserve that. I deserve better. Now, don't get me wrong. There might be a place where that works, right? If I'm at the grocery store and, you know, and I'm buying products and a gallon of milk costs $20, I'd be, I'd be like, I deserve four gallons of milk for $20. I mean, that might make some sense in some context. But this general disposition of I deserve better has just t- kind of taken control. But if we really have a sense of gratitude, what takes over is this idea that I'm in debt. The Apostle Paul viewed himself in light of the grace of God to be a debtor of all men. I owe everybody. Why? Because of the price paid for me. I was seeking to comfort a buddy of mine, pastor friend who has now since gone to be with the Lord and he got cancer, and he was about my age, and he was one of the sweetest guys I'd ever met. And, um, you know, so we're interacting, and I'm like, going, how you doing? How's it going? And he got back to me one time just with a simple phrase, the price has been paid. I mean, you, know, you understand, right? Like, his comfort of his soul revolved around the fact that there was a debt paid by another the blood of Christ. When that is weaved into our hearts, we do not live this life as if we are owed, but we live this life as if we, in fact, owe. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would truly heighten our understanding of our own guilt before you that we might appreciate and worship your holy name and be thankful for the grace bestowed upon us by the blood of Christ, this very gospel, this good news. And we do pray that as a sense of, out of a sense of gratitude for what you have done for us, that our whole lives would reflect this, that we would live in a manner consistent with all of these things, that we would have a, a genuine outpouring of selfless love that we would view ourselves as a a debtor to all that might reflect that we have just begun to understand what has been done for us. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.